Thank you for downloading this week's episode of PR Week's Coffee Break. For more episodes, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of Coffee Break. It's Steve Barrett here. I'm the Editorial Director of PR Week. Delighted to welcome Ariel to the uh, Ariel Patrick to the show, who's CCO of Aerial Investments. Sorry, I was concentrating so much on getting those pronunciations right. But Ariel, welcome to the show, and uh, thanks for joining us on Coffee Break. Thank you so much, Steve. Um, yes, it's Ariel at Aerial Investments. It's the source <laughs> of endless jokes every day. People don't get tired of it. So I know. happy to be here and, and grateful to be able to share some insights on uh today's PR challenges with you. Yeah, for sure. So you spent uh, a bunch of time in the agency world at Weber, Shamwick and Edelman, and then you went client side, I think, in 2020 at uh, Ariel. And tell us a little bit about Ariel and and what prompted you to look for a client side role. Well, and I know you're supposed to say this, but it really is true that I was not looking. I absolutely. (laughs) absolutely I've heard that a few times. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not just saying that because Richard Edelman might be watching. Um, No, I I absolutely adored being on the agency side. And I always tell people, I think it's the best training ground. You learn to be an octopus and have your hands in so many different types of issues and see as many movies as possible in every scenario. Um, So I don't think I would be here where I am today um, at the age of 33 as a CCO uh, if it had not been for the opportunities given to me on the agency side. So Long story short, after graduating from Princeton, I ended up at Weber Shamwick. I was there for five and a half years, um, moved up the ladder, um, had about six roles there in five and a half years, which was incredible. Um, then was poached to go to Edelman and run um, the M&A and restructuring practice in New York within financial communications. Many thanks to Lex Savanto, who's the global MD there, who discovered me at the age of 28 and gave took a chance on me and made me an SVP there and um, left as an EVP. The reason why I left was really just because it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. Melody Hobson, who I'm sure a lot of you know, um, she's famous for a few reasons, but I think my favorite is that she's the only um, black uh, Fortune 500 chair. Um, so she's the chair of Starbucks. She's also on the board of JP Morgan and she's co-CEO at Ariel. She had called me I think it was on a Sunday during the middle of the pandemic and asked for my perspective on her strategic plan. It's what we're calling Ariel 2.0. Melody had been a mentor of mine for many years, and this was the first time she actually had asked for my advice. And so- um, It's always good when the tables are turned like that, isn't it? The mentee becomes the mentor. Exactly. Uh, it It was so flattering and she sort of showed me a number of things that were going on at the firm. But what struck me was that communications, or as it was called at the time, marketing, was one of the core four pillars of the company's strategic plan. It's very it's very rare um, at companies, particularly of our size, um, for communications to have a seat at the table. And so one of the things that she was most focused on was our rebrand, which is a large scale effort, hopefully will be launched this summer. Um, But another was how to just tell our story as our business has changed. So uh, we're the first black owned investment firm in the United States, traditionally a mutual fund business with predominantly institutional clients. But we've 
evolved. We just this year launched our first private equity business or last year rather. Um, we also have ventured into the ETF world with new product lines um, and we're bigger than ever. At the you know beginning of the pandemic, we were below 10 billion in assets. Now we're inching up closer to 20, um, just in a matter of a year and a half. So along with that comes new narrative, new um, look and feel, more contemporary approach to how we're communicating. So um, I'm here to lead that change. And as part of my role, I essentially condensed what were previously six different practices. So there was marketing, events, philanthropy, external affairs, brand, um, and I'm forgetting one. <laughs> and those were all separate groups. And so I actually, um, condense them all together into one all stakeholder communications practice. I'm the first person to have my role at the firm. And I also sit on the operating committee, which is a rare opportunity for a communications person to be an operational manager at the firm. So we, we talk a lot about purposeful business at PR Week, and it's obviously a big issue in business generally. You see massive players like BlackRock sort of making statements about it through the Larry Fink's annual letter and saying they're not going to invest in, um, you know, non-purposeful companies we could debate whether they actually you know do that in practice but that's where it gets complicated doesn't it because it's it's not easy to separate it out and there are lots of different stakeholders and shareholders activists um how do you make the argument for purposeful business in a world which is so driven by shareholder uh, value and profit and convince people that actually purposeful business is good business and can be just as profitable if not more so at least my perspective is that from a communication standpoint, we have to stop using the term impact to describe what is actually alpha generating business. So if you are a consumer business that has a very diverse customer base, it can only be responsible to have a board and a leadership team and a product innovation team that represent what your consumer base looks like. So when you call it impact, it somehow dilutes what is actually revenue driving and actually responsible uh, stewardship of a business, not only on behalf of customers, but also on behalf of shareholders. So I try not to use the word impact ever, actually. Um, we actually just put out our ESG report, which I co-wrote with um, our head of ESG and I don't. I think we use the word impact maybe once or twice in, in all of the you know sixty pages. It's it's very important uh, that we don't misconstrue or um, actually feed the notion that uh, diversity, the S part of the ESG framework, are purely social good. Um, I think the other piece is that unfortunately, because the world is still catching up. Um, we're really behind, if you really think about it. We've been talking about race for three to 400 years. Um, the fact that we are still struggling to measure, track, and have really standardized approaches to what best practices as it relates to social impact and DEI, and there I go again, I said impact, <laughs> um, <laughs> is, is problematic. So I think for us at Ariel, our focus is pushing our portfolio companies and also ourselves to adopt proprietary and standardized approaches to actually tracking data, measuring progress, reporting on it as frequently as possible, and not treating it lightly. I mean, it, you know, if, if you're a public company 
when you fall short on your earnings guidance, that's a killer. Um, falling short on your DEI goal should should actually have the same impact. Um, unfortunately, where you have to start though is actually having real goals that are measurable and trackable um, so that you can actually show where you've come and also tying uh, executive comp to those initiatives in the same way that financial and you know strate- other strategic pillars are tied to executive comp. Yeah, and no, we even saw NASDAQ, didn't we, a couple of years ago say we're going to start holding feet to the fire in terms of listing with us. I don't know where that went, but it was a bold statement. I don't know whether that was ever backed up. That it's was actually true. my first project when I got to Ariel was writing a letter on behalf of our firm um, in support of NASDAQ's board transparency rule. And really all they were calling for was transparency, right? Allowing yeah. the shareholder community to react to data that is is available. Um, and it did get through the SEC, which was a huge, huge feat. But unfortunately now they're facing litigation in certain jurisdictions against the rule, which I think is disheartening. Um, but we did participate in the amicus brief um in the you know some of the local courts that they're facing this issue with and um writing that narrative on behalf of ariel has been one of my biggest joys actually yeah well it just proves what, what how hard it is to get things done because that was a a, a, a bold initiative it was like you said it's not it's not not earth shattering but even that is very difficult to get through so now you did an interesting report, a uh, corporate director's report about, uh, you know, you look at the websites of corporations and you look at the C-suite and it's still a sea of mainly white male middle-aged faces, isn't it? Um, tell us about that report though, because it was very interesting. It was talking to a lot of black and, and other uh, people of color who are, who are directors and, and some very interesting findings on that report. Yeah, so one of my roles, in addition to the um, various hats I mentioned, uh, is running the Black Corporate Directors Conference, which has been around for, this will be our 20th anniversary. I call it the Allen & Co. sort of Davos of um, Black Corporate Directors. You'll never hear about it. That's intentional. It's an off-the-record forum that we host in Laguna Beach every year, where we encourage the Black and now Latinx as well, directors of the top Fortune 500 publicly traded companies to share the challenges that they're facing and the opportunities that they see ahead in terms of pushing the civil rights agenda in their respective boardrooms. We also invite um, luminaries uh, to speak on the stage. So we've had everyone from President Obama to Roz Brewer to even quirkier subjects like A-Rod to talk about what various sectors are are, are doing and, and where they have room to grow. And so one of the things that I'm obsessed with uh, is making sure that we're producing more data that is actually used and actionable. I think in our industry, in the PR industry, we need to stop using the term thought leadership just because it, it, to me, it guts the purpose of what we're trying to do, which is bringing news you can use as opposed to just positioning yourself as a thought leader and thinking about perception. So um, anyway, I produced this thought leadership (laughs) coming out of of the conference where I said, how rare is it to have 300 black and Latinx corporate directors of Fortune 500 companies accessible to us. No one has that cadre of people in one place at one time. So stemming from the 2021 conference, I actually sent out a survey asking them what really has been going on post the murder of George Floyd while we've seen all these announcements and pronouncements from companies, some of which 
honestly will prove to be empty. It remains to be seen. Um, where is the good news, right? Where do we actually think that uh, boards are thriving on governance as it relates to DEI issues? Um, and also created some action items stemming from that data. And what we found is that there's a huge gap between what leaders are talking about at the top, the press releases being generated, so, um, and what the average worker thinks. So we found that over 50% of white male workers, average white male workers, believe that race receives too much attention in the workplace, but directors feel the exact opposite. How do you actually rationalize that gap? The issue is, education, data sharing, proving and explaining to people that it's alpha generating for their businesses to pay attention to this. So yeah, there's a sort um, of knee-jerk reaction now that anything anything you say about that topic is wokeness and it just should be, you know, it's just sort of, uh, it's put in a bucket, isn't it? I, th I th thought one of the other interesting things was, I mean, you can't treat every person in one group the same, can you? And the 300 people you're talking about, they had very different views. They were from different communities and, 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 and just as you would expect, right? Because people tend to put everyone in a box depending on, you know, one characteristic. And were there a couple of things that surprised you that came out of that as well? I think I was most surprised at how candid the directors were, to be honest, particularly since they sit on the boards of the companies that they were talking about. So in some ways they feel responsible, right, for the outcomes, not solely. Um, but to me, the most striking data was that a very significant portion of our black and, and Latino and Latina directors um, are not necessarily given proper oversight of DEI issues through the committees that have the most impact over those issues, such as nominating and governance, um, and in some cases, risk and audit, right? They're not bringing the impact of their businesses on underserved communities into that framework as often. So we asked some pretty probing questions there on what the committee work looks like and where they are positioned. And what it showed me is that companies that continue to nominate, and in many cases, elect diverse directors aren't being thoughtful enough about where those people are sitting in the boardroom and whether they're actually in a position to enact the change that we're hoping. I think they're looking at it a bit from a PR perspective and saying, well, look at our numbers. We have X number of diverse people, women, people of color, but um, the thought isn't going into what their areas of expertise are actually going to do um, and how DEI fits into that. Just one very quick final point. Now you're a client, you, you employ agencies, I guess. How do you make sure that the agencies are diverse that are supplying you and that uh, they're walking the walk as well as talking the talk? Great question. Um, so one of the things that we focus on a lot at Ariel is supplier diversity or business diversity, as we like to call it, because supplier could imply, you know, janitorial services, whereas we look at everything, including high margin businesses like legal services and PR. Um, if I work with a vendor that is unavoidably going to be white owned, right? Of course I aim for a black owned or other underserved community owned business, but sometimes it's unavoidable. The best vendor is a white owned business. It's critical that we demand that one of the most senior people on the pitch team be of color or and a woman or and or depending on the reality of their business but people forget that supplier diversity can look many different ways and if perhaps there isn't a business of scale to service you today that's 
minority owned, you do have the power to demand that those majority owned businesses are actually staffing their accounts with the perspectives that matter to you. Um, and yeah. that was kind of, you know, when I think about back on my agency days, clients were not requiring that I was leading the account, but it must have been pretty powerful to see an under 30 black woman leading yeah. an M&A transaction, right? Um, sitting in the room with bankers and lawyers that looked totally differently. And so, um, yeah, I so, try to push that. Yeah. So if someone's pitching Ariel, um, diverse team, don't overdo the thought leadership and the impact and yeah, you'll have a good chance of success. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Ariel. It was great to chat to you and uh, looking forward to seeing what you do in the future at Ariel. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Coffee Break. For more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.